This is Tina Douglas, and you're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast with your host, my husband, Liam Douglas. Enjoy! Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 338. Now, my student listeners have been asking for this for the last few months, and I was lucky enough to be able to get in touch with these two gentlemen who are joining me on the show today. They were originally with the Camera Store and then DP Review TV, and now I'm assuming they're going to call it Petapixel TV. So, Chris Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks Thank for having us. We're actually going to just call it Petapixel. We're dropping the TV. Okay. <laughs> cool. Thanks for having us, Liam. It's great to be here. Absolutely. And so you guys officially start with Petapixel tomorrow, which is exciting news. But before we get into that, um, let's see, let, let's ask, because this is always my opening question for guests. Chris, how did you get into photography? And then we'll pass it over to Jordan with the same question, how, he, how you guys got into this field that you're doing. Uh, so I, I failed my photography courses in school. Uh, I, <laughs> I really didn't uh, enjoy photography when I was uh, going to university. And so um, I don't know what it was, Liam. I was just looking online and I was checking out a website called, uh, it, it was on mirror.com. And it was like this, uh, I think it was out of Singapore. It was a website that showed a lot of classic cameras. So it covered all the old Canons and Olympus and Nikons. And I remember just going through those pages and I saw a Nikon FE fm style camera and i thought it was one of the most beautiful things ever so i decided on a whim to go get one learn photography like in a really old school way black and white film and from there it just kind of took off i started you know learning about aperture shutter speed doing my own darkroom stuff developing my own film uh, making prints and that was it so i guess i just needed to do it on my own personally uh, rather than like you know be instructed to do it had to be the right time oh that's understandable, and it's totally cool uh, that you started out with black and white film. I started with film myself in the late 70s. My uncle gave me my first camera, and I've been doing it ever since. I did a lot of film, but to be honest, I'm so glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> me too. It's fun once in a while, but maybe like once a year now for me. Yeah. All right, so Jordan, same question. How would you get into this? Yeah, I was really into video, uh, which should be a evident for what I do at the show uh, for a really long time. But uh, I moved back. I moved away for a little while and I came back to Calgary, uh, where I'm based. Uh, I was looking for videotape at a camera store and started chatting with the owner a little bit. And he's like, you seem to know what you're talking about. Uh, would you like a job? And this was at a photography store, uh, which I knew nothing about photography at the time, but I needed work. So I uh, jumped on it and then eventually got really into it, uh, especially like my wife or my wife now worked at the same camera store. So we, uh, Jordan, you just muted yourself, I think, buddy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no oh, problem. Oh. Um, yeah, I, I got really into photography at that point. I felt like I kind of hit a wall with what I could do in terms of video. It was back in the day where it was like you were shooting with a camcorder unless you had hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, so I got really into photography as a creative thing and then actually went back into video when the 5D Mark II came out and it became a lot more accessible um, shooting creative video at that point. 
Totally cool. So you guys met when you were working at the camera store, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, we uh, Jordan started. I'd been there just maybe a few years before that, and he started, and we kind of hit it off on a mutual love of classic films. Um, you know, talking about movies and things like that from the you know '50s, '60s, '70s, and you know, I was a teacher of photography at that time. I was doing some stuff for the store. Uh, we were teaching basic photography classes, and then I started teaching up at a technical college that we have here in Calgary called uh, the Southern Alberta Institute of Technology. And um, we kind of, you know, teaching in front of a crowd is kind of like talking in front of a camera. And so Jordan had this background of shooting video. I had this background of, you know, talking in front of a crowd and audience and, you know, it, teaching is a performance. And so we were like, well, why don't we just start doing our own videos? YouTube was pretty early at that point. We started out doing store tours and then we kind of got into gear reviews and it sort of picked up from there. Sweet. Sweet. And you guys, I mean, you guys have been doing some fantastic content for as long as I've been following the two of you, um, which is greatly appreciated. Now, just to let the, the audience know, I didn't invite Gordon here because I didn't want this episode to devolve into Jerry Springer. <laughs> I know. Thank Gordon, you. I appreciate I, it. That dude is insufferable. Yeah, I know Jordan and Gordon kind of have a kind of hate, hate relationship and Chris and Gordon love each other. So but I didn't want it to devolve into Jerry Springer. I don't need broken noses or anything like that <laughs> yeah plus you know they have very similar voices so i think you know on a podcast it'd be really hard to differentiate the two and you know it would just be like jordan being really angry i think for the whole thing yeah <laughs> absolutely um so uh jordan getting over to you um you're video centric you're the video guy you do fantastic videos the two of you together your cinematography is really great now do you do the editing as well or um, do you guys do that together? Yeah, so I do the editing as well on it, um, which I I send a rough over to Chris so he can take a look at it and give me any feedback, uh, which is generally like keep more of the things that I said in the episode <laughs> is typically what I hear there. <laughs> Uh, but I actually really enjoy that side. I know a lot of people complain about editing, and it's a, definitely the biggest time sink, but I really like putting all the pieces together. It would be something, you know, if I ever looked at getting an assistant, it'd be something I'd kind of have a tough time giving up, I think. Yeah, yeah, and I can understand that. And you, you do a fantastic job with not only the cinematography, but the editing. I mean, you guys just put out top-notch videos. I wish I could do my videos as well as you guys do. <laughs> Maybe I'd get more yeah, subs. Yeah. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of, uh, I don't know, effort and arguing and <laughs> going back and forth. And uh, and then, yeah, Jordan edits out all of my stuff and it sounds tight and uh, concise and it uh, it works really well. Yeah, it does. Works fantastic, <laughs> you guys. I mean, you guys, uh, to me, you guys have a great partnership and it's awesome that you guys are friends outside of work. That's really cool. Um, I've known over the years and I can't think of any off the top of my head. I've actually heard about, you know, more in the Hollywood vein where, you know, two actors work together. They do a great together in a TV show or movie, but in real life, they hate each other's guts. <laughs> We we love each other. We tolerate each other. It's it's like, you know, I always equate it to being in a marriage. You know, I mean, there's there's ups and downs. But uh, on a serious note too, our families, I mean, our wives both work at the camera store. They're both best friends. Our kids play it. And so our families are very intertwined. So even if we did hate each other, we'd still be stuck with each other. It's just the way it is. <laughs> oh, man, Jordan. 
Uh, it sounds like you guys are basically each in two marriages, a work marriage and then a regular marriage. <laughs> I think that's totally fair to say. Yeah, I mean, th just the way our show was set up when we were back at the camera store where we were working at the store during the day and then filming our episodes in the evenings and weekends. Like if we didn't get along, that would have been yeah. hellish. It would be completely unsustainable. So, uh, yeah, being friends made this all possible. We, we would spend more time with each other than with our families, you know, especially in the early days of the camera store where, like Jordan said, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of effort. You know, you, you don't kind of get in the groove. Uh, you don't get into the sort of rhythm of making videos and making it a bit more, you know, streamlined. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of time. It was a lot of reshoots and stuff like that. So, yeah, we uh, we were stuck at the hip almost literally. Oh, yeah, I can imagine, because when you guys were both working at the camera store and doing the videos, I mean, you guys had to have been putting in like 12, 16 hour days between the store and the videos. It was rough. Yeah, it was a rough experience. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would definitely be brutal. Oh, my goodness. All right. So uh, th now this is a topic I talk about frequently with guests, and you guys are two great guys to talk to about this next question. Um, because I tell this to students all the time when they ask me. So I'll throw it to Jordan first, and then you can throw it to Chris. Out of all the camera systems that you guys have worked with, reviewed, which systems do you like the best and why? Now, uh, Jordan, I know yours is going to be more from the video side. Um, and, and again, I want to reiterate, I, I tell my students all the time, it doesn't matter what system you decide to go with, they all make great images. Yeah, and for video shooting, I've been using Panasonic as my primary. Uh, we do like to shoot the episodes on the cameras we're reviewing when possible, but if that's not an option, then I'm generally going to lean towards the Panasonic GH6 Micro Four Thirds or the uh, the new S5 II. I'm really loving uh, in their full frame system, uh, and it's just just with those all about usability. They've got a bunch of assist tools that I really like working with waveforms, you know, punch and focus while you're recording, things that make my life a lot easier and their lenses are really designed for video shooters uh, so that's what i've been leaning on it's certainly the system that i'm most at home with but if i'm just taking pictures i've actually really fallen in love with that nikon z9 um it's just a pleasure to work with but it's you know it's a giant camera and i have no nikon z mount lenses but whenever we get one of those to play with uh i just love the photography experience with it. And it's one of my favorite video cameras as well. So if I could only have one camera, that would kind of be my one right now. Ah, okay. And uh, how about you, Chris? So Liam, I don't know if you know this about me, but I kind of like to fish a little bit. Oh yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, it, I, I mentioned that because, you know, like with fishing, you can buy whatever brand of rod, it doesn't matter, right? A fishing rod's a fishing rod, but with photography, it's, it's very different. We got into industry, you start to realize that you buy a brand and you are basically financially locked to that brand, right? I mean, to switch brands is a huge loss of money. You got to sell everything yep. at a loss, buy everything again. Right. So yep. It's a weird dynamic where you're stuck in a brand. And, and we get this asked a lot by people is, you know, what brand should I buy? What camera should I buy? We're in the unique position where we're playing with different gear every week, right? I don't get to use one camera system. It's Sony th this week and it's Olympus the next week and it's Nikon the next. And so it gives me a it gives me a perspective to see a lot of different camera companies, their strengths and weaknesses. But I understand that, you know, people who are, are doing it for a living, they don't have that luxury of being able to try everything uh, all the time, right? You're stuck in a brand. 
So to pick what would be my favorite, it, it's tough. I always look at cameras as tools, like a shovel or a hammer. I don't really look at them as, as um, you know, fetish items of beauty and, and, you know, something that you wear on your shoulder like jewelry. But at the same time, they have to perform the right task. So <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I'm really kind of in love with uh, the new Sony a7R5 personally, but I use the OM system OM1 for my video work and for my photography when I'm out fishing. Um, and it's because they all have different purposes. You know, if I'm walking down the street, I actually have really fallen in love with like a range finders, something that I never thought I would, I would ever say. So I guess the answer is Liam, you got to have millions of dollars and just buy every single brand. Or uh, you gotta kind of you gotta kind of really evaluate what is so important to you in photography. Are you a street photographer? Are you a portrait photographer? And then really look at at getting the right gear for that particular application. Uh, I, I almost would say it's tough to choose a brand. It's tough to choose a particular camera kit. Um, you know, you got you got to really think about it personally on what you like to do, and whether you like it or not, I don't think you should you should focus on brand and what brands are good and aren't good. But you're going to be stuck in one anyways, whether you like it or not. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough question, but yeah, for me personally, if I had to pick one right now, Sony A seven R five probably checks the most boxes. That doesn't necessarily mean I have the most fun with it, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and I'm jealous because you've had the chance to play with Leica. I've always dreamed of getting a chance to use a Leica, but I'm not a dentist or a lawyer, so it'll pro probably never happen. <laughs> I could I could never afford one myself. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's not like I've got three of them sitting here. I they all go back to to, to Leica. And, and I'm very sad when it happens, but I will say, uh, I do have a lot of fun when using them and that's kind of the thing, right? Yeah. They're crazy expensive and I could personally never afford one, but if you're lucky enough to do so, it's a nice opportunity to be able to spend money in order to actually have a lot of fun in photography. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, go ahead, Jordan. It's kind of interesting. The, the saga of Chris and rangefinders, cause back at the camera store, he absolutely despised them. And then when we would get a, like a in for review, he'd wind up using the LCD or attaching an electronic viewfinder for years. And it's really just been in the last two years. I think that he's kind of gravitated to that. I mean, we were just shooting with the Leica M11 monochrome and it was fun to watch him actually using the rangefinder where before i would be like chris you have to put, to put your eye to the rangefinder at least while i'm shooting b-roll once in a while that's, true. that's what people are buying this for and uh yeah it's been fun to see that evolution and both of us have certainly changed our perspectives on some photography systems over the years yeah it only took 14 years and ironically the worse my eyes get as i get older the more i seem to like rangefinders go figure i don't get it but uh yeah it's it, it took a long time to get used to that feel and that rhythm and you know slowing down and and kind of shooting in a different uh, way and that and that's i think that's what people don't get about leica is yeah they're crazy expensive i used to be that person like jordan said that's why i hated them i was very practical very pragmatic i'm like you know they're they're a toy why would you spend that money nikon canon sony they all give you the same thing for way less than they can do way more. And then I started to realize that's not really what it's about. It's really, I got to think about, am I having an enjoyable experience when I'm using them? And every time I used them, I would have fun. So I'm like, oh, I guess there's something here. Yeah, but I, I, I can't afford, I, I still can't afford that. I don't think I ever will. Uh, well, you, we're in the same boat, my friend. And uh, <laughs> to your point a few minutes ago, it, you know, to try all the camera systems, you either got to do what you guys are doing and you have them sent to you, you know, for short periods of time. You got to have millions of dollars or you got to get a job at some place like the camera store or B&H. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the only advice I could think of really is, you know, in the end, the only answer that really makes sense is, and like you said, Liam, is you kind of just have to dive into a brand and then realize that all cameras are good and they all can perform what you need them to perform. And so, you know, any, every brand will offer cameras that are more specialized for wildlife or for sports or for street, you know, whatever you like to do. So you kind of just have to jump in and, and stick with it. And then just realize that photography is more about your personal skill than it is the the gear that you're using. Absolutely. And uh, well, for me personally, I shot Canon for many years. I did motorsports, wildlife, stuff like that. So I always had the big Canon bodies, you know, similar to the Z9 and the huge lenses, you know, the big white lenses that cost boatloads of money and all that good stuff. But um, and I, I enjoyed Canon. Okay. They were like a workhorse camera for me. But uh, last year, well, actually, it was just before that year before last in the fall, uh, my wife and I moved to North Carolina that spring. And I've I've had problems with both my arms for a little while now. My right one, I have CRPS in for almost 30 years now. And my doctor told me, he's like, look, your arms are just taking too much of a beating. You've either got to quit photography or you got to go with a lighter system. Mm-hmm. So I bit the bullet, took the loss. I got rid of all my Canon EOS R gear and switched to Fujifilm. And I'm glad I did. I've always been a big fan of both Canon and Fuji. And with Fuji, it's more, to me, it's more of an enjoyable experience. You know, like, like you were saying, Chris, my Canon's always just felt like a tool. Where to me, the Fujifilm cameras, they feel they're, they're more of, of a joy or an actual pleasure to use. I have two X-T4s. I have the X-E4, which I use for professional real estate work because it's super compact. And I have a GFX 50R, which I've had for about three years now. And I just got an X-Pro3 and the X-Pro3. Oh, my God, I love that camera, especially with the, the optical viewfinder. It's just so much fun. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I think I might be the only person on the planet who still uses micro four thirds or at least openly admits it, but, uh, no, no, me, no, I've, I've got other <laughs> friends that use them, <laughs> but for me, that's, that's the appeal is I, I, I don't, I don't care so much about the image quality and, you know, especially in the unique position I'm in where I get to try all different kinds of cameras and, and stuff. And we, you know, we evaluate image quality. We look at noise levels, we look at dynamic range, we look at megapixels, we do all that. But in the end, I mean, like we're spoiled nowadays. They all take great photos. They all take beautiful shots. The color can be edited to what you want. Like, you know, people complain too much about that stuff. So in the end, I, I really appreciate a lot of the smaller mirrorless cameras and micro four thirds when I want that really compact, lightweight experience, smaller lenses, smaller bodies. Um, and and uh, yeah, mirrorless, I, I'll never, I'll personally never go back to using an SLR for my work as much as I I, I enjoy using them and have enjoyed and grew up that way. I just want smaller and lighter, you know? Absolutely. And I agree with you 100% there. Now, believe it or not, my first um, career in photography, many, many moons ago, I started out as a children's portrait photographer for Kmart back when nobody had retail studios in their stores. Myself and five other guys actually traveled the entire eastern seaboard doing the children and family portraits at every Kmart on the East Coast. You're a brave man. (laughs) Well, I've always had a knack with kids, and it's probably because I could do silly voices and puppet shows and all that crazy stuff. So I made a lot of money doing it because uh, 
I would get the the shots of the kids that nobody else could get, you know, the looks on their faces and stuff like that. Um, so that was a lot of fun. But no, you're definitely not the only one shooting micro four thirds. I have a lot of friends that actually prefer micro four thirds because it's smaller, lighter. The lenses are great quality and a heck of a lot cheaper. Uh, than most of the other systems on the market. And I know, especially the Panasonic gear, to you, Jordan, um, they are just fantastic for video. I think probably, I would say, and I want to get your take on this, Jordan, I would say probably the two best cameras uh, of the general ones we talk about in the photography sphere, as far as video is concerned, would be Panasonic and then I would say probably a close second would be the Sony A7S line. Am I correct, Jordan? Yeah, those are great workhorse video cameras, especially a lot of like YouTubers are really leaning into those systems. Yeah, that's what I, I had a feeling that's where it was going was a lot of people were going with the Panasonics or the A7S line. Now, I know another one that's becoming popular is the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema cameras. And now, have you played around with those, Jordan? I, I'm assuming you probably tried those at one time or another. Yeah, we've got a couple of reviews on DP Review for those. Uh, last summer, I was using the Pocket 6K. I mean, I think it's hilarious. They are not pocket cameras anymore. Those are some of the biggest cameras we've ever reviewed. Uh, and they do have some real advantages, like in terms of their recording formats. I think those are the best cameras out there. Uh, just being able to record internal raw video, which is becoming more common, but certainly not something that a lot of cameras offer it. And they're the only camera system where you've got video editing software that is actually matched with the camera. So straight out of the camera, Blackmagic raw footage looks absolutely beautiful. I just find they're very difficult cameras to work with in terms of usability. Um, just basic things like the autofocus will only do a single shot if you need it and wobble back and forth. Uh, punch and magnification isn't super good on those cameras. Battery life has been a problem on a lot of them. But if you can work around the limitations, which is always how cinema cameras have been, like they've been clunky beasts, but the results you could get were great. And the Blackmagic just brought that down to a price where it's a lot more accessible for creators. So if I was like, you know, a student filmmaker or something, that would be a great option. But I want something that's a lot easier to work with in the field. And that's why I've kind of leaned into the Panasonic system a bit more. Yeah. And I've heard that from a lot of people that, you know, that are more film, more video centric, but the Panasonics are just, they're the top of the line as far as video creation goes. Well, and it used to be, you know, if you need autofocus, grab a Sony camera. And if you don't need autofocus, then the Panasonics were the best option. But the S5 II is actually a pretty respectable camera for video autofocus as well. So I think that's going to make Panasonic a more mainstream option in the next few years here. Yeah, I thought I'd seen a video you guys did on the on the Pocket 6K. And I agree, they're definitely not pocket cameras. I had the I had the Micro Four Thirds, the 4K model for a while. And to be, and I'll be totally honest with you, the first time I powered that thing up and I looked at the rear screen, I'm like, oh my God, I need freaking Jordan or somebody like that <laughs> to show me how to use this damn thing. I actually didn't use it at all the whole time I owned it. I shot, I think maybe two or three 30 second clips and they didn't turn out the way I wanted them. So I just said the hell with it and traded them in with my Canon gear when I switched to, to all Fujifilm stuff. 
Well, if you did use it, it would have broken. So it's a good thing you didn't. Because <laughs> I worked at the camera store when those things came out and every po original pocket that went out came back with like the HDMI port pushed into the camera or the screen stopped working or like the actual lens mount flange would just separate from the body. It was oh, it, it was a nightmare, that camera. Yeah, that's bad. Holy cow. Now, and, and I know the newer 6K model, I believe, takes the Canon EF mount lenses, correct? Yeah, it's interesting. They did that because uh, the Pro model has a uh, neutral density filter built in, which is great. And that takes up the space in the lens mount. But uh, the G2 and the basic 6K model, it's just empty space in the body, which seems kind of crazy to me. I wish they'd gone with a mirrorless mount that then you could adapt to EF if you wanted to use those lenses. Um, but uh, yeah, going with the EF mount, it just means you don't have access to any of the new optics. And the Mirrorless lenses are better than the DSLR designs we used to use. Yeah, exactly. And that was the thing that puzzled me. I'm like, why didn't they just stick with micro four thirds? Because there are so many good video lenses in that mount. Yeah, exactly. And you could adapt an EF mount to it. And I remember there was a um, JVC camera with a micro four thirds um, mount on it, but it was a super 35 sensor. Uh, and they're, they're like, yeah, the idea is you're just going to be using the micro four thirds and adapting other lenses to it. And I think Blackmagic should have done something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Would have made more sense. Chris, did you have something to, to uh, chime in on the Blackmagic cameras? No, not really. I mean, I've always been in the front of them and let Jordan handle them. And, you know, I feel like maybe things have changed quite a bit in the last couple of years with systems like your Fujifilm, which would be are your excellent hybrid systems now, right? And Panasonic now having phase detect autofocus becoming an even better hybrid system. I know, thank Sony. God. Right? You know, Sony has always been there for a while, too. So it's like, I, I feel like... There was a time where Canon EF was really popular for video work and and PL mount. And obviously that stuff is still there. But I think the vast majority of creators now, they're firmly entrenched into the, you know, what I would call traditional camera companies. So Fujifilm, Nikon, Sony, you know, um, Micro Four Thirds, I don't know. I mean, you know, we've we I use video for Micro Four Thirds on the OM system, but they do have some weaknesses. But when you get into... Yeah, full-frame mirrorless hybrid cameras. They're affordable. There's lots of good lens choices available now. So I, I don't know what Blackmagic's going to do. I, I personally think that mirrorless is probably the way to go now with uh, traditional companies. Yeah, that's the one thing I keep thinking. It, it, because, you know, Blackmagic does make great cameras as far as from a filmmaker standpoint. But it's like, oh, my God, so many of these other companies now just offer incredible video capabilities in their hybrid cameras. That uh, for somebody like Black Magic, it just seems like it's going to be extremely hard for them to bring in any new customers to their system when you've got the Sony A7S line, you got the Panasonic line, which is phenomenal for video, and they've recently added phase detect autofocus. Thank God. <laughs> yep. I don't know why they held out so long. Um, and, you know, because there was guys like Jordan who loved to manually focus like a champ on his. Uh, on his ah, okay. That's, that's what that's it was. So Jordan was behind keeping them on yeah, contrast. Completely. <laughs> yeah. I was just messaging Panasonic every day. Like, don't you dare put usable autofocus in these cameras or how will people hire me? Yeah. I'm but eventually I let my, I let my selfishness go at a certain point and realize that some people might find that feature valuable. You know, it, it is interesting. I mean, we joke about it, Liam, but it's interesting for, you know, 12 years on our show, Jordan was uh, 
fantastic manual focuser, a holdout for manual focusing, right? Would choose cameras that had better functionality for video, you know, waveforms and 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 video tools and stuff at the, at the expense of autofocus because he didn't care, he didn't need it. And we would kind of dabble whenever a new camera come out. He'd be like, oh, I guess I'll try autofocus for a little bit. And, you know, they usually didn't perform very, very well. But in the last couple of years now, certainly in the last year, Jordan has firmly moved over to a lot of autofocus, just trusting the autofocus, letting it do its thing. So uh, I would say that's a testament to how how effective video autofocus has become on multiple brands of cameras now. I mean, we go Canon, we go Panasonic, we go Sony, and uh, Jordan's letting it uh, autofocus for a lot of shots that he would normally have to do a, a difficult focus pull manually for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead, Jordan. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's something I really think is going to be useful when you're watching our reviews. Like I mentioned earlier, I try to shoot it on the camera we're reviewing when possible. And me manually focusing doesn't really tell the audience that much because the majority are going to be using these in autofocus. So now I'm trying to do that more. But if I am back on the uh, Panasonics, I don't have the same camera that we're reviewing to shoot it on. Then I would say now I'm actually doing about a 50-50 split between autofocus and manual focus at this point. Hey, that's cool. So we, Chris, who slowly dragged you kicking and screaming into the modern age. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's all on Chris. Hey, Jordan, what you're doing is not good for our core audience. He really no, I, brought I me into this with, century. <laughs> I was fine with him manually focusing. It's just, you know, we'd always have to redo shots and be like, oh, oh, got to try it again. It was a little bit off or, you know, you missed your mark a little bit or whatever. So autofocus has made my life a lot easier. So that's that. I'm happy. And if I'm happy, Jordan's usually fairly happy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's funny when uh, you mentioned the Blackmagic cameras, but Chris filmed me on that Blackmagic 6K camera when we shot that review. And it was driving him absolutely crazy. I think that's uh, among the most frustrated he's ever been shooting. And I, I know coming from like a filmmaking background, I was like, the interface is great. And Chris, the whole time is like, nothing in this camera makes any sense. The same reaction that you had with your pocket camera. <laughs> yeah, I didn't like it at all. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't work well at all. Yeah, you you were probably like five minutes into using that camera, Chris, and you were like, I need to just do a Kai W and set this thing on fire. Yeah, I have a flamethrower. I should have just, you know, I don't know. You, we have to give them back roughly in the same state that they arrived. So, you know. Yeah, they probably wouldn't have been happy if you sent them back a melted blob. <laughs> no, probably not. I mean, you know, but the video would have gone viral for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Goodness. Oh, so when. Talking about autofocus, that was actually a great segue because it was one of the topics I wanted to talk to you both about because, like you said a moment ago, Chris, in the last year especially, autofocus has just gone insane in cameras. Everybody's got really good autofocus. Now, some are better than others. I know for the longest time, Sony was the king of autofocus in their, in their mirrorless cameras. Canon was always king in the DSLR world as far as autofocus. Theirs was so much more accurate. Um, I remember watching videos when Kai and, and Loke were with, uh, uh, with the, their old YouTube channel, Digital Rev, in Hong Kong, and they would do comparisons of Canon versus Nikon DSLRs, you know, shooting girls playing volleyball, and the Nikon would always lock onto the stupid net where the cannon would go past the net right to the girl's face and stay locked on it as they were moving about and playing. And that was incredible. And then in the mirrorless world, of course, Sony 
was the first major player in mirrorless technology. The other companies dabbled in it a little bit. Canon had the M series, you know, the EFM models. But in the last year, I would, yeah, definitely the last year. Not, I don't think it'd be any farther back than that. It's been my experience. Now, I've only played with both systems a little bit because I shoot primarily, you know, I shoot all Fujifilm now. But I've heard from a lot of people that I respect their opinions, and I wanted to talk to you two about this, that Canon has actually gotten to the point where they've surpassed Sony in accuracy and the, quote, stickiness of their autofocus on their mirrorless cameras. Now, what do you guys say about it? And I'm not asking to start a fight or anything. I just want your expert <laughs> opinions because you guys have played with both systems extensively. Yeah, I I, don't, I wouldn't agree with that. I mean, I still think Sony are the king of autofocus, uh, if we want to talk about it that way. I think they have been for years that, you know, they've always been the sort of gold standard that everybody else has been trying to mimic honestly. So when Sony came out with real-time tracking, that was probably the biggest change that we'd seen in the autofocusing world. And the beauty of it was that it just worked without having to customize anything, without really having to set much. I mean, you could, but out of the box, it worked well for a, a large majority of people. Uh, their eye detect was very accurate. It was on the iris, not the eyelashes. And so they really were the gold standard, not just for effectiveness, but for making it convenient and, and actually easy to use. And although other companies kind of started to do eye autofocus, you know, sometimes it wasn't very accurate or in Canon's case, it was good, but you needed to customize the hell out of it for the situation you were in for it to actually work well. So the big change that we've seen, I think, recently, Canon have absolutely stepped up their game. Their autofocus is excellent for animals. I'd say the eye detect has really improved in the last year. And they've made it more of a simple interface where you don't have to customize heavily to get the best results. So I, I still think Sony are maybe a little bit more sticky, honestly, a little bit more accurate out of the box. But Canon are very close. I think Nikon has made big changes. They still have a little bit of room to go. Fujifilm has improved, but they've got uh, some room to go still to, to really kind of catch up. And Panasonic, I really love they have phase detect, but I still feel like it, it needs a few more generations of technology before they've caught up or, or reached a similar standard. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Jordan, over to you. Yeah, well, on the photo side of things, I do think it's worth pointing out that uh, Chris has been using the A7R5 quite a bit, which is Sony's latest autofocus system, but that hasn't been put in many other bodies. It's just that in the ZV-E1 vlogging camera at this point, um, where Canon is putting their latest algorithm, you know, from the R3 all the way down to like the little R50 budget camera. Uh, so more people have access to Canon's best autofocus at this point. Uh, and certainly for budget shooters, I'd take you know, one of those cannons over like a Sony A6100, A6400 or something like that. Um, but of course, we'll see those Sony features trickle through all of their cameras in the future. Uh, for video autofocus, actually, uh, I think Sony is head and shoulders above everyone. Uh, Canon, you know, they've done a ton of work with their uh, stills autofocus, but their video autofocus, I still find quite flaky. Um Nikon, that Z9, again, has really great video autofocus. I would probably put them in second place at this point. And then probably the Panasonic. Uh, I'm actually, the S5 is 
not perfect, but it's consistent. So I know what kind of things are going to give it problems where, you know, Canon, sometimes it's like a clean frame and it'll just decide to go focus on the background for no reason. And they've got a new option that's supposed to control that. But when I was talking about how, hey, they got this new feature that'll keep it from drifting to the background in our video review, the focus drifted to the background right there. So I still oh, don't geez. think they're like 100 percent there. Yeah. Yep. It sounds like you're hundred percent right on that. And it's interesting because I've never talked to him personally. I've tried to get him to come on the show, but he never answers me when I email him. But Jared Poland swears uphill and down that Canon's got Sony beaten autofocus now, especially with the R3. Um, so I wanted to get your guys' take on that because you've used both systems as well. And I wasn't positive, but I thought especially Chris was more partial to Sony's being better. Um, they've all improved tremendously. I mean, it's ridiculous the amount of improvements these companies have made in their AF system over the last year. And it's just going to keep getting better and better. Now, the the A7R5, that one, I believe Sony also introduced an AI chip to help with the autofocus. Am I correct on that? Yeah, that's that's kind of the new technology that they threw in there. And I mean, I, I, I like the Sony's consistency across their line. You know, I, I do think they're very effective. When we heard that, you know, in, in the press release and the meetings with Sony, my first instinct was like, that sounds like marketing gobbledygook, right? I mean, we're throwing a lot of AI around, you know, and a lot of times AI is used when really the appropriate term would be more machine learning or deep learning, not not AI. But uh, at any rate, the, the key thing, I think, for any camera nowadays, as far as having good capabilities and being able to be upgraded in the future with more firmware, is the camera has to have good processing power. That's key. So I think whatever chip they want to call it, it enhances the camera's processing capabilities. And I actually noticed a substantial benefit in the autofocus in just that it is very consistent. It, it's very effective. It tracks subjects in an intelligent way. Um, I like the way that it will tr seamlessly transition to a person's torso or body, then back to their eyes, uh, even from quite far away in the frame. So, you know, it's more of just Sony enhancing their ability to make their autofocus work in a very logical way, in a very predictable way, and, and in what feels to maybe most people like a very intuitive way, you are letting the camera make a lot of decisions for you. And absolutely, you can go full manual and you can set the autofocus point and go old school. But honestly, wherever the camera seems to focus is 99% of the time where I would want it to. So uh, I find it really effective and they're tracking, you know, if I can put a box on something and then just track it, it just seems to be very sticky. It stays there. So yeah, I thought it was marketing garbage, but it is actually a, a nice improvement. But as Jordan said, it's also the kind of improvement that you have to make a brand new camera to really gain those benefits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think people are throwing around this AI terminology way too much when it's not actually applicable to something like that new autofocus chip. To me, that's more machine learning or deep learning or like you said, whatever you want to call it. Um, now, one thing I wanted to hit you guys both up about, again, because you get to see so many systems. Back when I first started my show, uh, I started in late 2018, and that was when Canon first announced the R. And I was telling everybody that I talked to at the time, I said, you watch with the research and development deep pockets that Canon has, just like Sony does, because they're, you know, they have so many different product lines that they make money from, uh, not just their cameras. I told everybody, I'm like 18 to 24 months and Canon will have caught up 
with Sony as far as their mirrorless capabilities and their cameras. And sure enough, in exactly 18 months, the R5 and R6 dropped and just blew everybody out of the water. Did you guys see that coming as well? Or were you more skeptical about what Canon was going to be able to accomplish? I'll throw it over to you first, Jordan. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised what a big jump those cameras were because uh, I was not a fan of the R or the RP. Uh, it was a huge step forward, but I think Canon recognized that with their reaction to those two, that they needed to make a big step. And I think both of those cameras were, you know, excellent, but a little bit rushed. I mean, the, both of them had serious overheating issues uh, that took some firmware to get over. Uh, and now we've got the R6 too, which is what the R6 should have been at launch. It's a very stable camera. Uh, the electronic shutter on that thing is very good and very usable. Uh, so I strongly suspect we'll see the same thing with the R5 coming up, you know, fix the overheating issues on it, get that latest R3 algorithms in the body. Uh, but yeah, I would say probably the R6, R5 were the biggest single jump that we've seen from a camera manufacturer ever. Yeah, exactly. And and that was the one thing I kept telling people. I said, look, the R and the RP are not great. I had both bodies at the time. I'm like, they're decent cameras. They're not great. But this, these are bridge cameras for Canon. This is just Canon's way of saying, okay, we're finally going to stick our toes in the mirrorless marketplace and we'll have better stuff down the road. Generally, that's how Canon does things. I've kind of kept track of them as a company for years. And uh, so Everybody told me I was crazy. They were like, oh, you're nuts. There's no way in hell they're going to get even close to Sony in 18 to 24 months. And then the R5 and R6 came out. And granted, they did have the overheat issues. But, man, that was a huge leap forward for Canon and mirrorless technology. In, in a way, I guess, because they had had the M line for quite a while. So it wasn't like they didn't have any previous experience with mirrorless technology. Uh, but, yeah, let me throw that over to you, Chris, on uh, Canon's leap forward. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Canon, I think that, uh, well, I think with any brand, you have to remember that they all kind of get stuck into certain ruts or, you know, they improve one thing, but something else is, you know, needing improvement. And I would say with Canon, they were kind of in digital sensor hell for a little bit compared to other companies. And again, this is review talk, right? I mean, they still, photos are photos. They all took great photos. But for a long time, Canon was having a hard time making imaging sensors that could compete with the Sony chips. And, and and everybody else who's using the Sony chips, right? So dynamic range, high ISO performance, that kind of stuff. They just kind of lagged a little bit. Um, they put a lot of noise reduction into their files permanently. And so, they, you know, they always looked a little bit soft. And I think, I think what Canon really had going for them was a legacy of excellent handling. You know, that the cameras handle well, their menus are intuitive, their controls make sense, and, and their bodies weren't too heavy. And so when the R and the RP came out, Although they did have some weird missteps like that manual function button. That thing was ridiculous. I'm glad they got rid of that bar, that manual <laughs> function bar. Oh, man. I love that thing and nobody else does. Yeah, you're the only one in the entire planet. So they finally then decided to come along and be like, you know what? Uh, other than Liam, nobody likes that bar. So we're going to take that out. We're going to make these cameras a great midpoint body design wise where they're not too heavy. They're not too light. They're not too big. They're not too small. Good grip, good controls. And so I think anybody who picked up an R5, R6, regardless of the image quality, of the autofocus, they were just like, oh, this camera handles really well for photography. 
you know, it makes sense. It feels good. Uh, you know, it's, it's easy to carry around. And then on top of that, they had improved their sensors and they had made autofocus that was now getting very comparable. So I think they, I think they're the benefit for them is they, kept the heritage of having great handling bodies, but improved the technological deficiencies that they needed to improve. And, and even where bad handling missteps on the R and the RP, they, they corrected those as well. And I'm, I'm happy to see now that they're making cameras like the R10, the R7, the R8, because that's, that's kind of building on that design structure for other sensor sizes. Yeah, but I, the one thing I always thought or felt, and I, I've expressed it on here a few times, is I, I just don't understand Canon's obsession with making an S line of lenses for their crop bodies. It's like, just make two, two different lines of bodies and make one set of freaking lenses. But I don't know. I mean, I guess Canon or Nikon does the same thing because they have their FX glass and their DX glass. But the difference is, I believe with Nikon, you can put the lenses on either body and you don't have to worry about causing any damage or issues, which, of course, now that we don't have mirrors, we don't have to worry about that quite so much. But it just seemed to me like Canon was wasting money by making these RFS lenses like they did with the EFS. Well, I mean, you can still use the um, the full frame glass on the crop, same as what we saw with EF lenses. And you can mount a crop sensor lens on their full frame R bodies. It's just going to switch to a 1.6 crop on yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, the reason for it is just that uh, putting a full frame lens on a crop body is really inefficient. You know, you're paying for a lot more glass to cover that larger sensor. You know, you can get crop sensor lenses like the ones for your Fuji film that are optimized for APS-C and they're smaller and they're sharp um, and much less expensive. And that's actually what I'd like to see from both Nikon and Canon is a whole bunch of dedicated cropped lenses, like those small primes, like what Fuji film has been excelling at. Uh, I think that would make a ton of sense, but they're, you know, their priority is definitely in full frame right now. And they're saying, ah, just put our full frame lenses on your crop body. But then you've got this giant expensive thing that's not your camera's not taking advantage of it. Yeah, that's definitely true. I can see your point on that. Over to you, Chris, on that. Yeah, no, I agree. I, you know, we, we, we complain that they don't make enough APS-C glass, you know, for their cameras. I mean, Canon did kind of have that, you know, misstep with the M series. They made a lot of good APS-C designs there, but of course they didn't fit the new R mount and they're, they're, they're obviously going RF mount in the future, right? I mean, that's clear now they're, they're not going to go back with the other side. So I want to see a lot of those nice APS-C optical formulas come over. I think they will. I don't like when camera companies you know, share the same mount, but then kind of ignore one sensor size. And, you know, the, the Nikon uh, ZFC is a good example. You know, it's an APS-C sensor and, and they haven't made that many lenses to support it, right? They're expecting to pull full frame lenses on it. So I, I want to see a more fleshed out APS-C lineup uh, from, from all the companies. So I'm all for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's worth pointing out on that subject that the Canon RF mount is not allowing third parties for autofocus, where uh, the Nikon Z now, we've just gotten uh, Sigma's outstanding APS-C prime trio, and we're seeing some more lenses from Tamron. Uh, so Nikon's going to have a big advantage there in their APS-C cameras if Canon doesn't wake up and either make more APS ones or open up the mount so we can yeah. get some of those great Sigma and Tamron lenses. 
I mean, Sony have been benefiting from that for years, right? I mean, and it was a smart move. I mean, get people into your bodies, let them buy other people's lenses. It just makes the system uh, far more popular for somebody who's apprehensive. Am I going to get stuck in a brand where they don't support me? And you know, with Sony, for example, you're going to have support no matter what. Exactly. And I, I personally think that was a stupid move on Canon's part to sue, you know, third-party lens makers out making autofocus lenses for the RF now. That was just insane. And Sony, speaking of them, to me, because I work in IT as well, and Sony, to me, when it comes to their cameras, the, I love the fact that they're the same thing in the computer world as what I would call open source. They're like, okay, here's our lens mount, here's our AF system, go to town, make all the lenses for our cameras you want. And that gives them a massive advantage over Canon and now Nikon's jumping on that bandwagon where they're letting, you know, their Z mount lenses be made by third party manufacturers. And Canon's going to get left in the dust if they don't uh, get off the pot or crap, so to speak. Uh, but oh, so now that we've talked uh, this stuff to death, uh, the one other thing I wanted to touch on with you guys, because again, I shoot it now Fujifilm. And and it was great that we were just talking about APS-C versus crop or uh, versus full frame sensors. Now in the APS-C world, and again, you guys have used all the systems on the market. I think from the standpoint of their sensor quality, their not just their image quality, their sensor, their processor, and the fact that they have really fantastic glass. I kind of agree with what a lot of people have been saying on the forums for a few years now, that when it comes to APS-C, Fuji is basically the king of that market. And I wanted to get your input on that. Over to you, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think that's natural just because they've they've dedicated themselves to that, right? I mean, they're the only kind of, you know, company, I mean, not the only company, but one of the few companies that has ignored full frame as a mount, right? They went right up to medium format and they're killing it there. They're doing a great job. But yeah, they, they've been so dedicated to APS-C, even when people were saying, oh, this is silly, you guys should make bigger sensors, what's wrong with you, everybody else is doing it. And they're like, no, we're going to have a complete line of lenses, we're going to have cameras that people are familiar with, we want them to be more compact cameras that you carry on your shoulder everywhere. And so I think that was really smart marketing strategy. And, and of course, a lot of people really dig the vintage look, they dig the manual dials. Um, uh, Canon and Nikon are, are venturing in there, but they're, they're, they're just dipping their toes, right? They don't seem to really want to fully commit to a line. And I get it. It's very expensive to run two completely different lines of, of, of cameras. So I don't know. We'll see, you know, I mean, the, the, to me, the Nikon ZFC is my perfect APS-C camera from a look standpoint. Uh, but it, it doesn't have a ton of support as far as lenses and stuff go. But yeah, Fujifilm have done a great job in that. And they know they have. And uh, I think I think limiting themselves was actually a really smart move. Oh, I agree 100%. And, and that's for me, that's the one of the big things with switching to Fuji is I can get with all the manual controls their cameras and their lenses have, I can get my quote film fix without actually having to mess with film. <laughs> all right. Uh, over to you, Jordan. I'll, I'll get your take on, on Fuji's APS-C platform. Sorry, guys, you're dropping in and out like crazy. Uh, oh, that's weird. Am I still coming through okay? Yeah, you're good. Okay, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I, I have really come to love the Fujifilm line over the years. Uh, the X-T3 was actually my personal camera for a little while, but my wife and I loved that. It was just such a 
fun photo camera to use. And then the video capability was actually really competitive. And now we've got a camera like the X-H2S, and that is a very comparable video quality to full frame cameras right now, because that sensor reads out so fast, it can actually shoot video in its 14 bit mode. Uh, so dynamic range is excellent on it. Color is really wonderful. Um, so I think they've made a bunch of really smart decisions. And because they're a smaller company, uh, there seems to be a little bit less almost hubris there. They're like, oh, we made the wrong decision on this. Like, I know I loved the X-T4, but I know a lot of photographers are like, we would like a less video-centric body. <laughs> so they went back and the X-T5, you know, felt like an X-T3 again. Um, I really like that about it. I think they can be a little bit more nimble and they can really listen to what people want. And we were saying... I think it was about a year ago. Hey, I'd love to see more open gate video where the video uses the entire sensor and you can choose your crop after the fact. And it was less than a year later that we're seeing uh, the Fuji films with that ability. And I think that is just because they're a smaller company and they listen to their shooters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. That new, that new sensor is very impressive. You know, I mean, it, it's it's uh, one of those things where I think even psychologically, a lot of people think, oh, if it's a smaller sensor, you're going to be limited in how many megapixels you can offer, even though, again, most people are kind of over megapixels and they realize it's not the be-all, end-all. Psychologically, it's still nice to have this APS-C format where you're pushing 40 megapixels. I mean, it's great. So I think, uh, I think psychologically, that gives people a lot of confidence. And then on top of that, the sensor, as Jordan said, is excellent. Like, it really is is full of detail, very sharp. Most of their lenses support it well. So, I mean, yeah, they're, they've always had a really good strategy and a really good way of moving forward. I, I personally am kind of an outlier in that as much as I love vintage cameras, for whatever reason, the XT series doesn't do it for me very much. Um, but uh, I don't know why that is, but I really... Uh, I'm going to try to get over that. It makes no sense. Um, but yeah, <laughs> otherwise, I mean, I, the look of it, my wife is always like, hey, can we hold on to that Fuji? I really want to shoot it because uh, they just because they look beautiful. I mean, she really likes the look of it. Oh, absolutely. And and Jordan, thank you very much for reading my mind, because when I threw the whole Fuji thing over to you, I was like, I hope he talks about the X-H2S. <laughs> and you got it. You got it 100 percent. And it, to, it, to be honest, this surprised me when Fuji announced the 40 megapixel sensor in their crop body cameras, because I didn't think anybody was going to be able to pull that off because I know there's there's certain limitations with the smaller sensor as far as how far you can push the megapixels. And for the longest time, Fuji had the largest crop body sensor at 26 megapixels. I think most of Canon's were 24 or 22 or 21 or whatever the case may be. And I think, uh, I, th I could be wrong, but I think Sony and Nikon were about in the same boat. So when Fuji's, when Fuji came out and they're like, yeah, we did a 40 megapixel sensor, suck on that. I was like, wow. Over to you, Chris. Yeah. Or Jordan, I'm sorry. Over to you, Jordan. Yeah, I was really impressed with the uh, quality of that sensor as well. And that one of the most impressive things is that it actually had a little bit more dynamic range than the 26 megapixel chip on it. And low light performance, I, you could see a small advantage of the 26 megapixel at like 50,000 ISO and above. But for almost all use cases, uh, that 40 megapixel, there's really no drawback to it. Uh, and it's great because it incentivizes Fuji to make a bunch of really sharp new lenses for it. We've seen the LM versions of a lot of their primes now and stuff. So I think that's great. You know, they will actually resolve that level of detail. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, I need you guys to do me a favor, if you would, because I know you guys still have a certain amount of contacts at Fujifilm. Uh, do me a favor. Ask them if they will make me a freaking 50R that actually has phase detect autofocus. I am so sick and tired. <laughs> I love that camera, but it just frustrates the daylights out of me that it only has contrast detect autofocus. Yeah, it's so funny. That's the one body design in medium format they haven't updated yet. So I will pass that on. <laughs> now, because um, uh, I haven't had a chance to play with it, and I don't know a lot about it. So when you mentioned that, did the 50S2 get phase detect? Because I thought the 50S2 is also still contrast. Or did you just mean the 50 models versus the 100s? Sorry, yeah, I was thinking 50 versus the 100s there. We are still contrast on the S2. And that's yeah. just the sensor that they're using. That is an ancient sensor. I mean, when did the 645Z come out? Eight years ago, nine years ago now? Yeah, yeah, that's kind of crazy that they haven't updated that sensor yet. I keep hoping that at some point in the near future, they'll announce like a 50R version 2 or Mark II or whatever they want to call it. And they'll say, hey, we're finally giving you phase detect. I'll be like, thank God, I can finally switch bodies and get phase detect. <laughs> Or just go to the hundreds. Just go to the hundreds. Well, I mean, they're they're worth it, and they're fantastic. I mean, the 100S is, yeah, I think Jordan and I both agree it's still, like, such a great camera. Yeah, exactly. And, and I love the idea of the 102 megapixels only because I do a lot of landscape stuff, and I'm getting into doing more product photography. And the, the extra resolution is handy in those particular scenarios. The thing I don't like about the 100S is its body style. I Call me old school. I just prefer the more rangefinder styling of the 50R. Really? That's that's funny. See, I would completely disagree with that. I remember touching the 50R for whatever reason. It totally turned me off. I just did not like it. And then the 100S, I was like, yeah, this is this is the one I would want. Well, yeah, but I also, the 100S is told to be physically like an SLR or DSLR. Yeah, but I I also prefer the XH2 bodies on their APS-C line to their XT bodies. I, there's something about that. I don't know control dials SLR style. Yeah, you know, I I still really dig that. Yeah, the PSAM dial and all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I prefer that still. <laughs> yeah. All right, cool. Well, make that happen for me, Jordan. I'd appreciate it if you can get him to give me a phase detect sensor in the 50R Mark II. I'd be so happy. Yeah, Jordan, get it, get a new sensor in there, Jordan. Oh, and one other thing, uh, it might take both of you ganging up on Fuji because I already tried through Dan Bailey, who's a Fuji X shooter, and didn't get anywhere. Get them to put a bloody GPS chip in a freaking camera, for God's sakes. It's 2023, and Fuji has never released a body that has a freaking GPS chip. Well, they just want you to use their really uh, terrible app that crashes all the time. Exactly. So, that, yeah, that's, that's what I would complain to them about all the time. I'm like, your app sucks. Give me a stupid chip. I, I don't think anybody is really putting GPS chips in anything anymore, unfortunately, Liam. You might, uh, that's going to be a big uphill battle. Well, it, that was something that kind of floored me because I was shooting, you know, the Canon DSLRs and I had the 5D bodies and I had 6D bodies and they all, all had GPS chips. And then Canon's like, oh, we got the R5 and the R6. And I'm like, awesome. And they're like, yeah, no GPS. And I'm like, what the hell? You had it in all the previous SLR models. Why the hell did you take it out? Yeah, I think smartphone integration is really where everybody's going to want to be going now more and more and more. So I, I don't want to say never for you, Liam. I don't want to say never. But uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. My money's on no GPS. Well, if nothing else, Jordan, stick your evil brother on him. Maybe he can convince him for us. 
oh, he's busy working on blockbusters. He has no time for this kind of situation. <laughs> okay. Now, um, I know it's we're getting close to an hour here, but before we wrap up, I did want to give you guys an opportunity to talk about what you're going to be working on content-wise at Petapixel. I know you guys have been aching to branch out and doing different types of videos. I'm not asking you to give away any secrets or, you know, uh, stuff you're trying to keep confidential until you post it or anything like that, but just a general idea. Cause I know I'm, I'm absolutely certain you guys are going to continue to put out the great content that you've always done as far as gear reviews and stuff like that. But what are some of the new ideas you're looking to branch into on this new channel? I'll, I'll pass it to you first, Chris. Yeah, I, you know, we have shot a few episodes now and, you know, they're going to be coming out here tomorrow, which is great. And we hope everybody joins and, and has a watch. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's still going to feel very familiar, right? I mean, it's still me and Jordan. It's our character. It's our style. That's not changing. But working with Petapixel, they've given us a lot of creative freedom. Also, the freedom to kind of maybe branch out into other areas, maybe do more road trips, maybe do different kinds of gear outside of photography or outside of specifically cameras, at least. Um, but also, yeah, have fun with things and, and and try different ideas and see where they stick, stick and land. So I think that's going to be a fun experience for people to watch uh, as the as the show kind of morphs and changes and evolves. And uh, the best thing to do is subscribe. Just go on there right now to Petapixel, subscribe, because uh, tomorrow we've got, I think, a very exciting video, a very big-looking video. We also have some exciting projects, which, yes, we can't talk about yet, but I think you'll be, uh, you know, pretty blown away by because it really goes outside of the scope of just gear. Oh, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, definitely be looking forward to that. And as Chris mentioned, everybody get your butt over to Petapixel on YouTube. Subscribe now. I know the last time I checked a day or two ago, I think you guys were already up to 92,000 subs without releasing an official video yet. Um, not a full length content video, um, which is phenomenal. And I'm hoping... I'm hoping and I'm pulling for you guys to blow away the number of subs you had on DP Review. I think you guys were at like 412,000 there. I'd, I'd really like to see you guys get up to a million on the new channel. Go ahead, George. Yeah, I mean, here's hope. Yeah, here's hoping. Um, it's uh, it's going to be a bit of a uh, slog initially, I think, um, just to get those numbers back up. But the higher we get those subs, the more access we're going to get to cool locations and things like that. So I'm really looking forward to growing that. And I want to know what people think about some of the new uh, content that we're doing. Like we do have a documentary coming out that's unlike anything we've done before. So uh, people should definitely check that out. You know, subscribe even if you're not really looking at new camera gear because there's going to be some photo and video related stuff uh, that even if you're not shopping is going to be really cool and interesting. Uh, so take a look at that. Yeah, I think I think the focus for this show is going to still be gear reviews absolutely, but Petapixel also really wants to talk about the experience of why we even buy the gear in the first place, right? And that's to create stuff, that's to take photos, that's to make movies. And so in that regard, I think that's going to be a little bit more emphasis and I, I personally myself would want to see more of that. Um but yeah, it's uh, and you know, as far as subscribers go, we appreciate all the support of the people who have continued to follow us. I don't know, Jordan, the way I look at it, we built up Camera Store to over 300,000, we built up Deep Review to over 4. We'll see what we build up Petapixel to, but we'll just add all those together right that counts right we just we just keep stacking them on top of each other that'll be our million pretty soon i think right oh yeah that'll get you extremely close for sure and there you go. that's one of the big things i'm excited for is with your new 
partners at Petapixel, it sounds like they are going to give you even more creative freedom to do different types of videos. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, to be honest. I mean, your gear reviews have always been phenomenal. You guys do a fantastic job, but I want to see some more of your creative stuff, documentary stuff, whatever the case may be. I'm excited for that just because you guys do such a great job with your content and you work so well together. Oh, one thing I do want to add, please, please, please do not get rid of your end of the year tradition where you guys get drunk on camera and have some sort of video game fight or some other trivia contest because that I love those videos at the end of the year. Yeah, those aren't going anywhere. I we I proposed once a month, but I don't think that's going to fly. <laughs> I would perish. So that's not happening. <laughs> Yeah, no, all that stuff is staying. I mean, you know, it's it's still the Chris and Jordan show regardless. So, yes, everybody can rest assured. Awesome. That's fantastic. And, yeah, I don't know, Chris. I think uh, uh, an episode a month where you guys get drunk. No, no, no. I don't want you guys getting cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> you guys got to keep making videos for a number of quite a few years yet so I can continue to enjoy watching your content. So we don't need cirrhosis of the liver creeping into this. I don't know. We did a Leica review once way back in the day and I'd had like, you know, a very fortified beer and uh, a big one at that. And it was a good episode, right? Trent? That was a fun episode. That was a nightmare. Uh, it took <laughs> endless takes to get anything usable out of it. And you're looking at it through rose colored glasses. So we are it not was, doing that. It was, no, it was hilarious. No. Hey, I, so I got to ask you, yeah, because I think I know what video you're talking about. Jordan, how many times did he spill the beer on the camera while you were trying to film me? Oh, no, no. Well, I drank that the... beer completely before we did the, uh, there was no beer left. Oh, okay. I, I, I destroyed it. Yeah. And it wasn't a sealed camera anyway. So we wouldn't have had that anywhere near the booze. Uh, okay. Uh, you guys, well, I mean, if you guys are going to do episodes like that, that's fine, but you might want to switch to GoPros for those videos just in case. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think they'll stand up to beer a lot better than anything else on the market right now. Our next GoPro video, I'm just going to get wasted and put it on a head mount, and I'm just going to wander around the streets. That'll be our GoPro review. It's going to be great. Oh, drunken wandering footage. That'll be cool. Yes, there you go. Everybody wants to see that, right? I'm looking forward to cutting that. That'll be great. <laughs> oh, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about, Chris, um, and I can't remember. I honestly don't remember if it was an older video or re I think it was a recent video. You guys were out on one of your videos I just saw, watched in the last couple of days, and you got a nasty injury to your foot. Was that oh, a yeah, recent that, thing, or was that an older video? Oh, that was last, uh, that was almost two summers ago. Oh, okay, um, so it was quite a while yeah. back. Okay, I saw that, and I was like, wow, he did some serious damage there. I hope that foot's yeah, okay that, now. Oh, yeah, I know, that was, but that was a rough day. That was brutal. That was, uh, it was a really bad cut, and uh yeah, I had to wash my my bloody foot off in a duck pond, so I'm sure that was good for my immune system. But uh, <laughs> you know, our our healthcare is great, and we're we're all covered up here, and so they took good care of me. But yeah, that was that was an interesting experience that I don't necessarily care to repeat. But uh, you know, we've had a few injuries. I remember pretending to be a motorcycle on a press trip once and jumped off a, a hill. That took the wind out of me pretty good. I was I was pretty sore for a couple of days after that. Uh, but that's about it. Hey, Jordan, any other serious? Injuries? 
Uh, no, I had a nasty fall. And uh, oh, you did. Th- one thing we can say is we have every time someone's been injured actually finished the episode. Like I could not believe that you yeah. kept reviewing Fujifilm lenses while you were sitting in the back of my truck because uh, you could stand yeah. on two feet. Yeah, just like rattling off the motor types of different lenses. So yes. you know, huge ups to you for that. And then uh, after <laughs> my fall, I think I might have just leaned on a fence and told you to talk, and I'd shoot B-roll later. That's how we got through that you, one. You but uh, yeah, that was a that you duffed it on like sheer ice it was rough and, and amazingly the camera didn't break we uh we break our bodies but not cameras oh uh, i know that feeling back when i was still living in georgia i uh, started a photo club down there and uh, i lived in the basically in the atlanta area and i took my group out one weekend to this old railroad trestle in covington georgia and it was back before i'd ever gotten my first drone which again i'm away from drones now because i just didn't have enough of a use for them but i wanted to get it, it was a beautiful day the sky was amazing everything was green you know it was just one of those gorgeous sunny days and i was like i've got to have a shot from the top of this trestle i just got to have that so i climbed this i think it was like a 900 foot embankment to get up to the side of the trestle to get my shot got the shot shot turned out fantastic on my way back down i lost my footing and fell two-thirds of that embankment fractured my right shoulder my uh 6d mark ii took a bit of a beating and so did the lens i had so i had to send them off thank god i had gear insurance but uh so, yeah, I've been there, done that. Well, it's worse than anything we've done. Oh, yeah, no, that's, yeah. Well, they thought it I was going to need surgery on the shoulder, but then I got lucky <laughs> and it turned out to just be a fracture. So, but, oh, my God, Yikes. that was painful. Not fun Yikes. at all. <laughs> well, guys, I want to thank you for your time. I don't want to keep you too much longer than the one hour because I know you guys got a million things going on and you got families. Um, my best to both your families. I uh, hope everybody is healthy and happy up there. And um, I'm looking forward to your new content that's going to be starting tomorrow with Petapixel. It's really exciting. Um, I'll throw it over to each of you if you have any last things you want to talk about real quick before we wrap up. Uh, I'll start with you this time, Jordan, just so you don't feel that I'm being impartial (laughs) or or that I'm being partial to Chris, I mean. No, no, absolutely. Um, So, yeah, everybody definitely check out the Petapixel stuff. I'm very proud of what we've done there. Um, And keep an eye on our socials as well. Um, That Jordan Drake on Twitter and Insta. And I'm going to try and document the behind the scenes of some of the stuff that we've been doing lately because it's very cool. uh, And you're definitely going to want to check that out as well. Yeah. And uh, just thanks so much for having us on the show, Liam. We appreciate it. And uh, yeah, again, please subscribe. If you want to find my socials, it's easy. My last name, N-I-C-C-O-L-L-S, is just about the weirdest way to spell it. So if you need to find me, just put that in and I'll most likely be the most famous Chris of those nickels anyways. But uh, otherwise, thanks for having us on the show. I appreciate it. And thanks to your viewers for listening. Hope, uh, hope we see you on the channel tomorrow. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'll make sure I put all the socials in the show notes for all of my listeners, because you guys definitely want to circle up with these great guys on all of their socials, as well as the Petapixel channel. Give them all the love and support you possibly can. These guys are two wonderful guys. Chris Jordan, I want to thank you one last time for being so generous with your personal time to come on the show and talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And so do the students that are listening. No problem. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Yeah, this was really fun. Thanks, Liam. Absolutely. And if you guys ever want to come on the show down the road again, you're always welcome. I know you guys will probably have an insane schedule 
once you're going to be officially putting out videos on a regular basis for Petapixel. But hey, if you get a break down the road and you want to come back on and talk about some stuff, feel free to hit me up. You're always welcome on the show. Thank you. No, it'll just be more, are we going to be injured and in, in the uh, right way to do it? That's that's more the question. We'll see. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, Jordan, again, thank you so much. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Go spend some quality time with your families and get that first video released tomorrow. We're looking forward to it. Thanks. We'll see you later. Yep. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. There you have it, folks. Uh, Chris Nichols and Jordan Drake of Petapixel. They are going to be starting their Petapixel videos tomorrow, Monday, May 1st. So you want to make absolutely certain you get on that channel, get subscribed, give them the support that they deserve. These guys do a lot of work. They make really awesome content on their YouTube videos, on their channel. Trust me, you're not going to be disappointed. The fact that they're going to branch out and be able to do documentary stuff now and some other things is going to be really great. And it would be exciting to see some of their BTS stuff as well, you know, the behind the scenes stuff. All right, uh, let me go ahead and wrap up this episode. Remember to check out the Liam Photography Podcast Facebook group. It is a private group, and you must answer a security question to join, which is the name of the host of the show, myself, Liam. And I've also opened it up to allow you to give the name of a previous guest on the show to show that you are a listener. Once you're in the group, you are free to post your own original work. I'm also the admin of the Fujifilm GFX 50R group, which is the largest group for the 50R on Facebook. If you own or plan to own the 50R, you can request to join that group, but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group. You can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at liamphotoatl. If you like abandoned buildings and history, you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com. All right, that's going to wrap up episode 338 of the Liam Photography Podcast. I want to thank all of my listeners once again for subscribing, rating, and reviewing in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you might be getting your podcast. Also want to remind you to get over to the Petapixel YouTube channel, smash the subscribe button, like their videos, comment on them, share them out on social media. And you can do the same thing for the Liam Photography YouTube channel while you're already on YouTube. Hit the subscribe button for both channels and give both channels your support, especially Chris and Jordan. They're really great guys, really down to earth guys. They're a lot of fun to talk to and they make fantastic content. Also make sure to check out the show notes so you can find all their social links i have them in there for you so that you can follow them on instagram twitter and any of those other platforms that they're both on all right that's going to wrap this one up i will see you all again on sunday